Hi, I'm Miranda Wright with HOWC Ministries. To learn more about our ministries, please visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com. The covenants and promises of God, these agreements, these partnerships that God has created man to have with him that we've looked at from the beginning, from the Edemic to the Noic to the amazing promises and covenant that he made with Abraham and even Moses. We come now to the New Testament and we have seen many of the miraculous, amazing ways that Jesus fulfilled all of these covenants for us, the only one who never failed to keep the terms of them, reminding ourselves that the word sin in the Hebrew could be translated as failure. It was a failure to keep the terms or the ordinances of the covenant, the agreement, as God taught us what it should look like to love him first and others more than ourselves in every situation. And so we come to the time of Jesus where he steps in and fulfills all of the terms and conditions because that we had continuously failed them so that Jesus could be our demonstration that this law would no longer have to be written just on stone tablets in word, but that he would be that word made flesh as a demonstration before us that we could see that God's way truly is best and that that truth might be engraven upon our hearts. Because that no matter how much the enemy or even man himself came against Jesus, trying to get him to break these agreements, to move in selfishness, sin, anger, pride, and offense, he didn't. He stuck with the teachings of the Lord God Almighty. He kept the agreement. He demonstrated to us what it looks like to live a life of obedience, to trust in God's wisdom, to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit and only do and say what God tells him. Jesus is our demonstration. He's our example, but he's more than that. He's also the only way, and he is life. Because Jesus not only came to fulfill the terms of the previous covenants, he came also to give us a new one. And since all of our previous messages on the covenants began in the Old Testament, I think it only befitting to start this one on the new covenant there also, because this is not something that was just invented in the time of Jesus. This was something that was prophesied all the way through the Old Testament. We can see it in Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 29, when the Lord God Almighty says through the prophet Jeremiah that in those days they shall say no more. The fathers have eaten a sour grape, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Sour or poisoned grapes represented the bad fruit that we've been talking about throughout this teaching. It represents that poison, that corruption, that sin nature that gets in, that receiving of the seed of a lie or a deception from the enemy that started originally with that old serpent in the tree. He's saying there's coming a time when no longer will this sin of the fathers be counted upon the children that when a father takes in a bad seed a lie or a deception an evil spirit that it will be transmitted unto the children God's gonna make a way of escape for them but everyone shall die by his own iniquity in other words these spirits won't come generationally which is what was happening in the Old Testament we saw this from the beginning that when Adam sinned and allowed that evil spirit and that lie in it was passed on through his children but there is a prophecy here being given that there is a day when God is going 
to make a way of escape from this. He says that in that day, everyone shall be held accountable for their own iniquity. Every man that eateth the bad fruit, the sour grape, his teeth shall be set on edge for himself. And when I hear this description of teeth being set on edge, I'm reminded of the description of hell where there will be torment and gnashing of teeth. Each man will be judged individually, not by whole groups or nationality. God's going to make a way to bring the lost children back into the family again, which has been his desire to do from the beginning. It says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break. Altogether, I was a husband unto them. Again, going back to our message on the Mosaic Covenant, that this was not about law. This was about love. It was a marriage covenant. And the Ten Commandments were a wedding vow. These were God giving a written example to them of what it should look like to be committed and in love with him. That they should be so thankful because of their deliverance that it would be easy. They would be driven to please and love the Lord God Almighty. Of course, more often than not failed in this because that they put more faith in their acts, their labors, their performances in others, in the land, and even in themselves than they did in their spiritual husband. He said, I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord, but this, this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts. He will find a way to get this word inside of them. And I will write it in their hearts. He will find a way to burn this reality into their minds, their emotions, and their understanding. And he says, when this happens, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. In other words, in this time when it comes, they will no longer have to go to the temple in Jerusalem to be taught by priests and by rabbis to be told this is what the word says. This is how you show that you know the Lord. He says, no, when that day comes, every man's going to have the opportunity to know me personally. He says, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And he says in another passage, these very same words, making the point that as long as the ordinances of the sun, the moon, the stars, and the waves are in motion, so will his faithfulness be to this new covenant. So what is the new covenant? Well, just like the Mosaic covenant before it, it is a love-based covenant. It is a marriage covenant. And just like the Abrahamic, the Noahic, and the Adamic, it is relationship-oriented. God has always desired to restore his children into the family, to bring them back into fellowship with him and communion. Remember that in the Mosaic Covenant, when the law was given on stone tablets, it was a description 
of what it looks like to love him, to be committed to him and to love others more than yourself. But they didn't get it. They kept returning to selfishness. In fact, when God offered this to them on Mount Sinai, they told Moses, we don't want God to speak to us directly. They wanted instead for a man to come and to teach them. So Jesus came as a man to demonstrate these words with his life in order to teach them. Jesus is the greatest teacher the world has ever known. And he taught with many marvelous words, but his greatest lessons were taught by example, by demonstration. And we as his disciples need to be willing to imitate this. Jesus was those words of the Old Testament made flesh. And we are to be the words of Jesus made flesh, manifested as a demonstration before men that they might see and believe it. This is why it says in the book of Revelation that in the end, the followers of Jesus overcome Satan by the blood of the lamb, what Jesus did, and the word of their testimony, the demonstration of what Jesus said played out in their lives, as was our example in Jesus Christ. And that they loved not their lives even unto the death, just like he did They were willing to demonstrate the teachings of Jesus no matter how much the enemy came to try to get them to break the agreements. For example, when Jesus said that in order to be forgiven, you must forgive. This is an ordinance of the new covenant because he said that there is no way around this. If you refuse to forgive your brother, then our father, which is in heaven, will not forgive us of our trespasses. So believe me, my friend, the enemy is going to come at you with mighty temptations to try to get you to move in offense and bitterness and unforgiveness. How hard did he come against Jesus with this, that even on the cross, while he was despised and rejected, while he was beat, spat upon, cursed, and being crucified, he had to maintain his righteousness by keeping the ordinance of the new covenant as our demonstration. He said, Father, forgive them. I pray for them. They don't know what they're doing. Remember, he told us in the Beatitudes that you are to pray for those who persecute you. You see, the amazing thing about the new covenant is that the ordinances of it were given throughout Jesus's earthly life and ministry. The New Testament is the wedding vow. The New Testament is The ordinance, the commandments, and the agreements. You say, we don't have any more commandments. No, Jesus actually said, a new commandment I give unto you. That in the old commandment from the beginning, you were commanded to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, thy mind, and thy strength, and to love others as thyself. But I tell you a new thing. Love them as I have loved you. Love them more than yourself. Be willing to sacrifice even unto the death, even for those who hate and persecute you. Pray and bless them. The entirety of the New Testament, all of the teachings of Jesus, contain the ordinances and commandments of this new covenant, but also its mighty promises. The new covenant for all intents and purposes is a marriage covenant, just like the old one when God intended to marry Israel in the wilderness and become their husband. Only he did it a different way because they asked, send us a man, and so he sent Jesus. And Jesus comes with his disciples, the church, the bride, those Jews who followed him at that time. And he brought them in 
to a house to have a supper with them before his crucifixion. This was the last supper. We all know of it. It's where we get the practice of communion. Communion is actually a token of the new covenant, like the rainbow was for Noah, or circumcision was for Abraham, or the Sabbath was for Moses. For those who are in marriage covenant with Jesus, communion is a token of it. There is another aspect of the new covenant that we will also discuss, which is the fulfilling of the previous covenant when we are buried with Christ, when we are crucified, and the token or symbol of that is baptism. When we are laid in the water and resurrected, it is a sign, an outward showing of an inward change that we have died, that the old person that we were is no longer there, that that person who was guilty of sin and worthy of death has been laid to rest and they are raised in newness of life through the blood and power and name of Jesus. And so looking at this new covenant that Jesus made, the baptism is part of the symbol that you are dying to the old while communion is part of the symbol that we are being brought into the new. Because you see, at the Last Supper, when Jesus sat there with his followers, there was a custom in the time that when a bride would become espoused to her husband, there would be a supper hill in her father's house. And in this custom, they would sit around the table and share a drink from a cup of covenant. And this was an agreement being made between the two parties, an agreement with the bride that she would wait, that she would go through a time of purification, that she would make herself ready for the returning of her husband to go away with him, to live with him for eternity. And the bridegroom, he was committing to go and to prepare a place for them at his father's house. Now to say that he was in his father's house is a little vague, what really took place in the culture was that the son would come back to the family land and he would build a place for him and his bride and his new family connected to his father's house in his father's territory. This is why Jesus said in his description of heaven that in my father's house are many mansions as it is translated. But what it really means is that there are many houses or rooms attached. In other words, there's a place there for everyone who is in covenant with Jesus. So that when Jesus sat there at the communion at the Last Supper and he said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. He was reminding them that you're coming into covenant marriage, covenant. In fact, as they drank the cup, he said, this is the cup of my covenant. He was being espoused to us. He was going to be our spiritual husband, our provider, our protector, our covering. And when he did this, he also took responsibility for us. That as our spiritual husband, when our judgment came, he stood in the way of it. He covered us. This is why the Apostle Paul tells us that a wife is to love her husband. And a husband is to sacrifice, even being willing to lay down his life for his bride. And he said, but what I'm telling you now is not just physical. I'm speaking of the mystery of Christ and the church. We took his name that day like a bride. Everything that was his became ours like a bride. He became our covering like a good husband. And when the time came for our judgment, he stood in between us and it and took it for us. But not before he willed everything of his inheritance to us.
so that when he died, everything that he had of the Father was transferred to the bride. This, my friend, is the beauty of the new covenant, the agreement that Jesus made with the Father that we come into by faith and love and commitment and the receiving of the blood of Jesus. In fact, that's what the word testament means. It's a will. You've heard the term, your last will and testament. The entirety of the New Testament is Jesus's will for his bride. Everything we inherit is in there. All the terms and conditions, all of his teachings, the agreements, our commitment. And as the bride, it's our commitment to follow his leading, to love him, and to prepare ourselves and purify ourselves daily for his returning. He says that we are sanctified by the washing of the water of the word. He said every word that he spoke to us, that is what will judge us on the day of judgment. Did we believe it? And it's an interesting thing that in the Jewish wedding ceremony, once the bridegroom left the bride after being espoused over that cup in that supper, he went away and then there was no communication between him and the bride until the wedding day. So if there was communication that needed to be made in between, it was the best man's job to go and deliver those messages to the bride or from the bride back to the bridegroom. It was also his job to check on her and make sure she was doing what she needed to, to become purified and ready and continue waiting that she wasn't being lazy or adulterous in any way. That best man that is sent by the husband spiritually for us is the Holy Spirit. His purpose is to purify us, to convict us, to make sure we are not being spiritually adulterous. This is why the Holy Spirit spoke through Paul and said those words that you are espoused unto one husband and I am here to make sure that I present you to him a chaste virgin to make sure that you are not beguiled like Eve was by the serpent by his subtleties to start following the leading or teachings of another and end up an adulterous lover we thank you, Lord, that you have given us your Holy Spirit to teach each of us if we are willing to hear it. Remember, he said that he would give us a new heart and put his spirit within us, that there would be no need to go and have these things taught to us, but that we would have the ability to seek him personally every day to see what he has to say. But when he speaks, we've got to listen. We've got to go through the process of purification. When he says you need to cut this away, you need to leave that behind. You've got to do it. You've got to be like a bride. You've got to be willing to come out of your father's house. You've got to be willing to lay down your own plans and ambitions. You've got to be willing to prepare yourself to be completely committed to your spiritual husband. Because you can't have both of it. You can't stay in the old family and be part of the new. You have to choose. But I tell you, just as God did even in the Old Testament, when he said, I have set before you life and death, but I tell you, choose life. Because there are a lot of amazing promises in the new covenant. Too many, in fact, to list them all in this message. But here is one of my favorites from among them. In Romans chapter 8, verse 14, it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, 
they it is who are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, right? Because we are espoused unto the son, we are adopted into the family. Think of what a son-in-law or a daughter-in-law is. It is a son according to the law. So according to the law of God, according to the covenant, when we become the bride of Christ, we become daughters-in-law sons and daughters of God by way of the law or the agreement of the covenant. Therefore, we can call him Abba, Father. The Spirit itself, it says, beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. This is amazing, my friend, that we become joint heirs with Christ. That means that everything that he inherits from the Father, we do too. That's amazing, my friend. That means blessing, provision, the resources of heaven, the inheritance, the promises, but also the rejection from those who stand against him. It says, for if so be that we are willing to suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together with him. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us for the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. The book of Hebrews tells us a lot about the new covenant because that it was written to the Jews who understood the concept of covenant. One of the places that he tells us of it is Hebrews chapter 10, and I'm going to read you most of it because it explains it better than I can. In verse 1, it says, For the law, having been a shadow of good things to come. In other words, the rituals that were done in the time of Moses, they were a prophetic declaration, a shadow, he's saying. Just like when we do a baptism, we are making a declaration with a physical act that demonstrates what we believe happened in the spirit, but we are doing it looking backwards at an event that already took place. In the same manner were these rituals done in the Old Testament as a physical proclamation or prophetic demonstration of what was going to happen in the spiritual. For example, on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would come in and sprinkle the blood of a sacrificed lamb on the mercy seat, and pray for the people in intercession to bring atonement for the sins of the people in the nation. This was a type and a shadow, a declaration of what would come one day whenever Jesus, who is our high priest, would enter in to the throne room of God because that he was the first man to ever die without sin and no sin can enter into the kingdom of heaven. Therefore was no man before him able to go in unto the true mercy seat, the throne of God to bring the blood of a sacrifice and make atonement for us. What he did happened in the spirit and it happened in truth. What they were doing was a prophetic declaration in faith of what God was going to do. So that it says that those things were a shadow of things to come, but was not the very image of those things like Christ was. Therefore, could those sacrifices which were offered year after year continually never make a person perfect or complete? For that if it would have done this, then they would have ceased to do the offering. They wouldn't have had to do it every year. 
but they did it as a reminder and a remembrance to stir their faith that this day was coming. But once that is done for real, it's done. He says, because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sin. He was saying if they had been truly cleansed, then they would have no more guilt or conscience of the sin. They wouldn't have had to continually come to be re-atoned for it. But in those sacrifices, was there a remembrance again made of sin every year? For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of many books it is written of me, to do thy will. Oh God, this is the purpose and point of Jesus. He didn't come to continually bring sacrifice and excuse sin. He came to do the will of God and remove sin. It says above when he said sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offerings for sin thou wouldest not. Neither hast thou pleasure in them which are offered by the law. God did not delight in this practice though it was necessary for a season. Then said he, Lo, I will come to do thy will, O God. Making that point again, that when you obey God and do his will, there is no sin and no need for a sacrifice for it, but that he would come and be perfect. He would keep all of the previous covenants. Remember that sin is a failure to keep the covenants, and they weren't being fulfilled by us. So Jesus came as God in the flesh, completely as a man, to walk in obedience to all of the instructions of God. It says that he came and he took away the first, that he may establish a second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. See, once he fulfilled this, then the sacrificial system that was set up in the previous was no longer needed because it was only a prophetic declaration of what he was coming to do, and he completed it. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from hence expecting until his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And I think one of the greatest testimonies of this is the fact that God himself allowed the destruction of the temple not long after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus so that these daily sacrifices could no longer continue to take place. God is omnipotent and all-powerful. If there was still a need for these sacrificial systems to continue, he would have made a way for it. He would not have left his people lacking and unable to fulfill his commandments for generations. No, he did it. He completed it. He fulfilled it. He sent Jesus. And then he gave us a new covenant. And so he did away with the traditions of the old one. It says, Wherefore the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. 
and I will put my laws into their hearts. See, he's quoting the Old Testament prophecy and saying this is the fulfillment of it. And in their minds will I write them and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. That's what I just said for you. There's no more sacrifice for it. The blood of Jesus is sufficient. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. The Holy of Holies was the place where the mercy seat was in the temple. It was the place where God's presence dwelled, and it was covered by a veil, which was a very thick curtain of hide and skin. The priest of the time having to be cleansed and sanctified and then carry that blood in. But Jesus himself, he did the real thing in heaven. His skin, his flesh was torn, the veil, his blood, the sacrifice poured out. His spirit, clean and perfect and without sin, was able to enter in boldly to the throne room of heaven. It says, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us then hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. This, my friend, is all part of the new covenant of Jesus, that we are to provoke one another, to love one another and even their enemies, and to do good works. Because that we have been given the ability by the blood of Jesus and his holy spirit. He says also, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. This was very important because that in the new covenant, we can come to God personally and we don't have to go through a priest. We can come and learn personally from the Holy Spirit, but he still works through a body. And he did not want the body, the family to become isolated apart from each other. He wants to work in a way that we know it's coming from God and no other. And so he says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. You've got to continue to come together and share with one another what the Holy Spirit is teaching and preaching and prophesying and revealing to you in your personal lives and in your prayer closet so that when all the pieces fit together, when you come and assemble as a family and help to love and encourage one another and do good works and show forth the good fruit and character of Jesus, you're going to know that God is really doing something and that this is not the work of a man or even a priest, but this is the work of the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ, the head working through the body, each person and member individually to bring about his will and his ministry in the earth. So he said, no matter what happens, no matter what comes, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhort one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. What day are they talking about? They're talking about the return of Jesus. The closer it comes to his returning, the harder it gets, the more he expects us to assemble together in fellowship with the brethren and exhort one another and encourage them in the faith and strengthen them that they might continue to run 
their race. And this is why we are exhorted to do this. Because he ends with this very dire warning. He said, for if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Remember, he started by explaining how Jesus takes the place of this old sacrificial system, that Jesus makes a way for us to come into the throne room of grace and seek God's wisdom to receive the power of his Holy Spirit, that grace that empowers us to continually grow and be purged and purified and sanctified that we might become that pure and spotless bride in anticipation for his returning, that we not be left out of the marriage supper of the Lamb because this is a marriage covenant. It says he made a way of escape out of these temptations. So if we willingly choose to return back to our sin, which will happen if you forsake the assembling of yourselves together with the brethren, or you cease to encourage them, or even help to speak that conviction by the leading of the Holy Spirit who works through the body, then you will return to your wickedness. And if this happens, there remains no more sacrifice for your sin. You're guilty all over again and in danger of the judgment. He says, for if you sin willfully after you have received the knowledge of the truth, then there remains no more sacrifice for your sins. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and a fiery indignation which shall devour the adversary. For he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden under foot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of this covenant, wherein he was sanctified, an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. We're not talking about someone who was offered the truth and they rejected it. No, this is very clear, my friend. It says that this is a person who had been sanctified by the blood covenant of Jesus Christ, but yet he counted it unholy, unworthy, something not strong enough, pure enough, divine enough to keep him from his sin and worldliness. He strayed away and willfully went back to the lust of the flesh the lust of the eye, and the pride of life, and in doing so has done despite to the spirit of grace. There is a very dire warning for this person who backslides, who breaks covenant with Jesus. And I think it very interesting that it said that under the law of Moses that a man was put to death under two or three witnesses. Because I see an image of the day of judgment when we stand before God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit to give account for our faithfulness to the new covenant. Three witnesses. It says, For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing. To fall into the hands of the living God. My friend, this is a serious covenant. It's full of blessing, mercy, protection, and provision. But there is still 
a final judgment. If you have strayed from the teachings of Jesus, if you have forsaken the assembling of yourselves together with others, where you might be convicted of sin and brought back into alignment with the ordinances of the covenant, if you have willfully returned to that which is displeasing to your spiritual husband, then humble yourself and come to him again in repentance. Call upon his name. Cry for mercy. Die to what you have become. Ask him for the cleansing of his blood and start afresh again. Plead for the mercy of Jesus. He is willing to cleanse and to forgive. He is willing to pull us back onto the narrow path. Don't run from him. Because as long as you continue in your sin, there remaineth no more sacrifice to cover you at the judgment. Humble yourself and run to him. Ask for the power, the grace of his Holy Spirit to once again empower you to be free from a life of sin. Start over. Get back in the word. Return to worship. Find an assembly. Go back to purifying, preparing, and becoming ready for the bridegroom's return. Because, my friend, the day is coming quickly. One of the most amazing things about the new covenant is the way that it marries together the seed of Abraham and the other lost children, the Gentile, how it levels the playing field between them because that all had sinned and gone astray. All have to come to Jesus to be grafted in. You see, the Gentiles, they were a wild tree. The Jews, they were a native tree, but the branches had all become corrupted and so they had all been cut off so that now everyone needs to be grafted back in to the root, which is Jesus Christ. We've all got to come back to that same sacrifice. So now we're all the same. We're back in the same family. How amazing this thing is. This was spoken of as the new man. Christ living on the inside of us. As a Gentile, we all become part of one family. Who we were no longer dictates our destiny. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, we read this, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we, having believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. In other words, the old rituals. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Because remember again that those old rituals were done prophetically speaking of Jesus so that when they were carried out, it was done in faith for the Christ that was coming. But once Christ came and fulfilled it, if you continue in them, then it is a declaration of unbelief. This is why they were warned that they would not enter into the promise because of unbelief. This is why the warning was given that you can miss the promise because of unbelief. So there was no reason to continue putting faith in the physical sacrificial system because it meant that you didn't have faith in Jesus who had fulfilled it. So Paul is warning the Galatians not to get entangled into this, not to put your faith in the work. The work had been done in faith for Jesus, but now we have faith in Jesus no longer needing the work. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. The next sentence is very important because while he's telling them that you no longer have to worry about those old rituals and laws, it doesn't negate the fact that we still have to abstain from sin, the moral laws. 
when he says this, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found to be sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? If you continue in sin, then you are giving the impression that Christ, who is supposed to be our good shepherd and the one of whom we are following his leading, is a minister of sin. Because if we are truly his and being justified by him, then we are following his leading and obeying his teachings. Therefore, if we choose to continue in sin, then we are implying that that came from him. So what does Paul say to this? He says, God forbid. For if I build again the thing which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. In other words, you're calling Christ a sinner. Christ came to destroy the works of flesh according to the scripture. Therefore, if he were to do anything to allow it or rebuild it or justify it, he would be breaking his own covenant. For I, says Paul, through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God, whom loved me and gave himself for me. Therefore, I do not frustrate the grace of God. Paul is making a very clear point here in bringing balance. He's saying, no, it is not by works. We can't continue to put our faith in these rituals. They will not save. But yet if Christ is in me and living through me, then I will not sin because he will not lead me to do it. For if he did, he would be breaking covenant. Remember, Jesus fulfilled the old covenants. He keeps the covenant with God. He is without sin. And then we come in covenant with him. Therefore, when he is now in us and living through us, God only sees the fulfillment of Jesus manifesting through us so that when we stand before him on the day of judgment, we will be seen as guiltless, having fulfilled all the covenants. This is an immense thing that God did for us through Jesus. Do not frustrate his mercies by continuing in your sinfulness and especially not while claiming the name of Jesus and implying that he doesn't keep his covenants or imply that he teaches men that they can be justified in unrighteousness. The New Testament is very clear that without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. What God granted Jesus now applies to us, not because of us, but because Jesus is in us and God will honor the agreement that he made with Jesus. You can read John chapter 17 to see what Jesus prayed when he prayed for us. He interceded for us and God is in agreement with Jesus and he will not break his covenant. Therefore, everything that he granted to Jesus is granted to us if Jesus is living through us, it is no longer I that live, but Christ, if we are truly abiding with him and him in us. And so the term of the new covenant is faith. But we like to believe that faith is just believing, believing what we want to believe, believing hard enough, believing in our own vain imaginations. This is not what faith is. Faith is trust, just like it was for Abraham 
and God accounted it unto him for righteousness. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We've got to trust what he says. That's why Jesus said that on the day of judgment, the words that he had spoken will be what judges us. Did we have faith in what he taught us? He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He said that if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will produce much fruit. But if you don't, you will be cut off and cast into the fire. He said, not those who call me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of the Father which is in heaven. The condition of the new covenant is faith. Faith in Jesus. Faith in what he did for us. Faith that what he did on Mount Calvary allows us to be cleansed and atoned for by his blood that we then might be a holy vessel that can receive of his Holy Spirit that can then come and teach us and indwell us and empower us with the grace to walk out that life of faith in everything he has to say. That we have faith and trust in him to lead us daily to sanctify us that we might become that pure and spotless bride that he is returning for. To have faith in his teachings, his leading, that we might be led by his spirit and called the children of God like we read earlier. Yes, we are saved by faith, which then releases God's grace that we might walk in the works that he has ordained from us from the foundations of the earth. It sets everything back right when we have faith in Jesus Christ, but not in our own vain imaginations, not in a God of our own making. Not in another Jesus, as Paul warned us that some come to teach us. We have to have faith in what he came to both preach and to demonstrate. Are you living according to the words of Jesus? Are you walking in agreement with the covenant that he died to leave us? So make sure that you do what Jesus said and abide. That's what a good bride does. We've got to come every day and sit with the Holy Spirit, which is the best man who comes to give us the instructions and wisdom and messages from our bridegroom and to help us to become that pure and spotless bride that he is coming back for at an unknown time. The Holy Spirit is given specifically for the work of sanctification and purification if we follow its leading daily. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, we read this, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, this is Jesus, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts, but who may abide in the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that he may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. The power of God's grace is the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why in the Old Testament it was literally called the Spirit of grace. But grace is not given to excuse us of sinfulness. It is given to empower us unto righteousness. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is to purify us that we might be a pure and spotless bride ready for his returning. He was prophesied to come as a refining fire. And we see this clarified all the more at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, verse 5. It says, Then went out unto him, John the Baptist, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the regions round about the Jordan. And they were baptized of him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. 
But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O ye generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? You see, many of these Pharisees would have been the children of Levi that was prophesied back in the book of Malachi that this spirit was coming to be a refiner of. And now they stand before John the Baptist at his baptism, and he calls them out for their sin and wickedness. And he tells them, bring forth therefore fruits that are fit to be evidence of repentance. And think not to say within yourselves, oh, but we have Abraham for our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. But now also the axe is laid unto the root of the tree. Again, remembering that because of sin, they were all cut off from him. So that now all must be grafted in again through Jesus. Therefore, he says, every tree which bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. Bring forth fruit that is fit to be an evidence of your repentance. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. This is the refiner's fire prophesied by Malachi, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor. You see, the fan he's talking about here is a winnowing fan. It was a tool that was used when the wheat was gathered into the threshing floor. And then a threshing tool called a tribulant, which is where we get our modern word tribulation from, came to thrash the wheat so that it would let go of the paper hull, the chaff, the trash, the useless things that rendered it useless to the kingdom. It separated it through this tribulation. And then a winnowing fan, a wind came to blow the chaff away to separate what was pure and good and holy from what was worldly, counterfeit, fake. That's what the power of the Holy Spirit came to do, to take your flesh away. It is the refiner's fire. It is the purification process. It is the tool of our sanctification when we're willing to sit with him and endure its teaching and leading. Even when it's hard, even when it's unpleasant, even when it leads us into a wilderness like it did for Jesus. Even when it takes us to a threshing, trying to get us to let go of that which hinders us from becoming bread, which is the true body of Jesus. He says when this Holy Ghost and fire comes, he will have a winnowing fan in his hand and he will thoroughly purge the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the garner. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then, as soon as he had spoken this, cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. And it was in this moment that the Holy Spirit came down and rested upon him. And John knew that he was the Messiah. He was the one prophesied in the book of Malachi. My friend, do not believe the lie of the enemy that the new covenant gives you the ability to sin when the very reason that the Holy Spirit was given was to purge you from it and the very reason that the blood of Jesus was shed for us was to overcome it 
do not trod underfoot the blood of the covenant of Jesus Christ and count it an unholy thing, or his sacrifice will no longer remain for your sin. Come to him, seek him while he may be found. Receive of his Holy Spirit. Let it teach you. Let it lead you. Let it purify you. Let it prepare you to be the bride that he desires of you. There is so much power in the new covenant, but we've got to remember that it's a partnership, just like all the rest of them. It's an agreement, and we can only hope to even begin it by coming in through the blood of Jesus. But once we come in, we've got to sit at his feet like Mary did and let him teach us. So we're going to close with this passage in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, as a summary of the new covenant. It says, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum of it. We have a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is of necessity that this man, having somewhat also to offer, for if he were still on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that the earthly priests offer gifts according to the law, who served only as an example and a shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses also was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount, that God showed him a pattern of heaven, and he was to build the tabernacle according to it. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant. And I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind, and I will write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth is waxed old and ready to vanish away. So Father, we thank you today that you made a way where there was no way. 
that you sent Jesus to provide a way of escape out of every temptation to bring us in to marriage covenant with him that we might receive of the promises of this new covenant and the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. Oh Lord, you did everything with perfection and with purpose. We thank you, Lord, for being willing to suffer and sacrifice to make us your bride, to bring us into the kingdom, the covenant, the blessings, and the promises, the protection, and the provision. Oh Lord, help us to understand by your leading an example and demonstration how to help others to come to have faith in it. Also, we thank you, Jesus, for the promise of eternal life, that you are the way, the truth, and the life, that there is no other way to the Father but through you, because that you are the mediator of the new covenant. And because you came and completed all of the old, they are no longer needed. For you said that you come not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. You came to fulfill every covenant. It is finished. You completed it so that now we might be made perfect or complete in Jesus. Do you believe this? This message was brought to you by HOWC Ministries. To learn more about our ministries, please visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com.